chapter 2, Paul had, uh, has uh, finished uh, the chapter by explaining uh, to Titus and then by, uh, by continuation to the church how Christ has, has given Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. We see that at the end in chapter uh, 2 and verse 14. And at the end of the chapter, as Paul has, has kind of summarized these things that, that, uh, that Christ has done and, and, and the reasons that He has done these things, Paul tells, to, uh, tells Titus to declare these things, to exhort these things, or, or to teach them with, uh, with authority, to encourage them, to urge them in this way, and also even to rebuke with authority those who would contradict this trustworthy message. And the authority that Titus and the elders and even Paul uh, are, are given is by virtue of the position that they have within the church as the elders of the church, but also by virtue of the message of Christ. Because the message that they, that they continue to pass down is the message that Christ passed on, uh, they have an authority that uh, should uh, be recognized and uh, heeded. But in chapter 3, he continues this, this thought of declaring these things and encouraging these things and, and, and rebuking uh, in, the, in these matters by reminding Titus and us this morning that Titus has a ministry of reminding. The people in Crete would have already heard these things when Paul wrote the letter to Titus. These things that Paul has spoken of, these things that he will continue to speak of, they know these things. And yet, his, his job as the, as the under-shepherd, as the overseer of the church, or as one of them, is to remind these people of things that they've already heard. Things that they already know. Things they already know to do. Ways that they already know to behave. But they need to be reminded. I find it encouraging because as you come to church week after week, and some of, uh, some of us in here have been coming to church uh, longer than, um, than many of us have been alive. You've probably not heard too many new things in a while. And that's fine. Uh, there's, there, is, uh, there is a vast, unsearchable uh, knowledge of God, but at the same time, uh, we're not necessarily looking for new things. Yet we're, we're trying to be reminded of good things, old things. Things that we already knew, but maybe just need to be reminded of at times. Things that maybe slip away from our memory, kind of fall away from the forefront. Uh, things that should always be at the, begin at the front of our minds. Specifically in this passage, they need to be reminded how to behave as Christians. And why they can behave this way, or why they should behave this way in the first place. In other words... Paul tells Titus to remind the Christians of the good works that they should be doing and the reason why they should be doing them. And so you see at the beginning, if you're, if you're using the notes, you see that the top, it's just Paul must remind the Christians of Christian behavior and in, in, in my attempt to just be, uh, be a little bit uh, concise and, and to summarize it for you, I've got them in uh, these different categories here, four categories. But he says here that uh, the first thing that they, he must do is he should remind them what they should be. What should, what should the Christians be? He reminds them not only of the doctrine that should be sound, as we've seen 
uh, in the previous two chapters, but now he begins to really focus, not a new focus, but a more emphasized focus on not just sound doctrine, but also sound behavior. Because as we've seen many times this phrase, good works, Paul believes that good works matter. Doing the right thing, doing the good thing matters. Now, not in, uh, in the arena of for salvation or justification. The good works have nothing to do with salvation and justification, but that doesn't mean that they don't matter at all. And Paul is very clear, as we've already seen, as we'll see again in this passage, that uh, salvation is by God's work alone, but that doesn't mean that we are excused from good works. They are a part of sanctification. They are an important part of the Christian's life. And as we've seen, and we can kind of compare chapter 2 and chapter 3 to one another, uh, good works are not limited to just inside the church. Many people last night and and leading up to this week did a good work of preparing the harvest dinner for a lot of people. It was still done within the church walls. And that was a great and wonderful thing. But these good works are not limited to what we do in the church, in the specific programs of the church. They are to go throughout the community and indeed throughout the whole world. If chapter 2 deals primarily with various groups and how these individual groups should behave within the church, chapter 3 emphasizes or really uh, uh, deals especially with how everybody should behave. If chapter 2 kind of reads like you, the old men, you act this way and the old women, you need to act this way and the young women, you need to act this way and the young men, you need to act this way. Chapter 3 is now everybody. Here's how everybody needs to behave. Now both chapter 2 and chapter 3 deal with universal Christian behavior. But also we see that if chapter 2 deals primarily with, uh, with emphasizing how we interact within the church, Chapter 3 makes it very clear that Christian behavior is supposed to go on outside the church and in the world. And so I've kind of grouped these, four, these behaviors into four categories. You see them if you're following, and just to help, them, uh, to help you to understand them a little bit easier and to make them maybe a little bit more memorable, Paul tells Titus you need to remind them uh, how to be in regards first to their attitude. We see at the very beginning of chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. He says here that, that they must be submissive. We've already seen the word submissive used in, in, re, in relation to uh, other relationships, but now he says that everybody needs to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This word submissive means to yield or, or to be subject to. And I think that it, 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 is, it, is, it is quite right that he's, he's, he's meaning submissive to human authorities. Uh, that would be the government be the king, would be the, the, the governor of, their, of their, their, their island, their nation, whatever, uh, whatever leadership and, and local and, 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 and higher authorities that they may have had. And we translate that into our day as, as we are to be submissive to our authorities. We don't have a king, but we have senators and we have representatives and we have lawmakers, we have a president, we have, uh, we have a, a, a network of leadership over us that has been given to us by God, and we are to be submissive. In a more personal and, and on a much lower level, we are to be submissive to our parents. We are to be submissive and yield to our employers. We are to be submissive to the police 
into whatever authority that has been placed over us. At work, at home, wherever we may be. And this allegiance that we have uh, to Christ, that we should have to Christ because we are we belong to Him, doesn't necessarily mean that we can't be loyal and submissive to uh, these human authorities. Of course, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and and uh, an objection sometimes to this this idea of being submissive to human authorities. People will say, well, yes, but what about when they, uh, they, they tell us to do something contrary to God's Word? When that, when that happens, yes, our ultimate and final authority and allegiance is to Christ. And, and, and uh, the, the, the apostles said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. But that's not how it is at every single turn. It is possible to be loyal to Christ and submissive to human authorities, which is why it is required of Christians here in Titus 3. I listened to uh, Alistair Begg preach uh, through this passage, and he made a comment that we are so quick to look for the exception to this rule of submission when we are very slow to obey the rule of submission. It's not the Christian's job, or it's not the mission of the church, it's not our goal to overthrow the government and to uh, figure out how we can make everybody live uh, by Christian values. It is our job to submit to Christ, and in doing so, we submit to the authorities that He has given to us. We are to follow the laws of the land, because in doing so, we honor God. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this, this being in subject, uh, subjection to the human authorities, uh, this is the will of God, that by doing, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He goes on to say, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a, a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is written in a day when human authorities were no less flawed and uh, difficult to submit to as they are today. Paul writes in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We as Christians are to be subject, submissive to our human authorities. But also, I think that Paul intends to, 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 to get the church to understand that they are submitting to spiritual authority. Because just a verse before, in verse 15, he spoke of this authority, and he said that, he, that Titus and the elders are to declare these things to exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then the very next verse, he says, is remind them to be submissive to authorities. To be submissive to the rulers and the authorities. This is the, the eldership within the church. This is the, the, and, and, and the only reason and the only grounds on which we have, they have an authority is the, the Bible itself. And the church is to submit and to yield to the law of the Bible, to, to, to submit themselves to the rule of God's word. 
This is in regard to their attitude. But next we move on and he says that in regard to their actions, they are to be reminded of their Christian behavior and that they must be obedient and is very similar to this submissive attitude. But now it's, it's moving from inside the heart, the attitude, and now uh, producing itself in action in their obedience, following the laws of the land and obeying the rules that have been placed over them. Even the ones we don't like, even the ones that don't make sense, even the ones that we feel are, are not the best rule, we are to obey the laws. He says we must be ready for every good work. Now back in chapter number 1, at the end of chapter 1, he talked about people who contradict the trustworthy message. They lead other people astray from the truth. And he says that those people are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Those people are unfit for any good work. But now in chapter 3, he's saying that the people that that have received the message, the people that are uh, submissive and are going to live the Christian life in front of other people must be ready to do good works. They They must be ready to act, which means that they must be prepared for doing good works before time. They must anticipate these opportunities and wait and watch for them and then act as the opportunity presents itself. And this goes beyond just doing what we must do to doing what is good to do. I read a quote out of one of the commentaries that I was using, and they says this extends the Christian's responsibility from mere passive posture in obeying the laws to an active, positive involvement in society. It's looking for the good things that we might do. It's, it's, it's showing our Christianity in tangible ways outside of the walls of the church, finding the good that we can do and doing it. We see next that Christian behavior is in regard to our expressions. He goes on to say that in verse 2 that uh, we are to speak evil of no one. This is the same word uh, that is used in in other places in Scripture to to talk about blasphemy or slander. Paul explains that Christian behavior has no room for slander and blasphemy, whether to someone's face or even behind their back. Gossiping, saying hurtful things that would damage someone's reputation or uh, disrespect them in some way or another. James writes that with our tongues we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And yet how often is it found in our midst? Paul writes to the Ephesians, a very familiar verse, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And a verse that we were taught, many of us as kids growing up in church, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And in, in, in the context of what Paul is saying there, he's saying all of the negative speech, the negative things that come out of our mouth need to be put away from us. The, the, the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the slander. And instead, our, our words ought to be marked by kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiving one another. And, 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 and what we see in, in chapter 3 and verse 2 there, that he says we are to speak evil of nobody. That includes our brothers and our sisters. Not supposed to speak unkind words to our parents, 
or to our children or about our boss or about our presidents or our senators or our governors or whoever they may be. We speak evil. I think that extends to social media, the way that we interact in blog posts and comments that people say and we feel that we can hide behind a a mask of of anonymity and say hurtful things, make our little jabs. And yet Christian behavior is not to be marked that way. We are to speak things that are kind and true and honest and lovely. We see also that they are to be, we are to be reminded of our Christian behavior in regards to our approach to other people. He goes on to say that we are to uh, be, avoid quarreling or, uh, or be peaceful, peaceable. Avoiding getting into these petty arguments that go nowhere. We'll, we'll see a little bit more of this in verse number nine as we get down there. He talks about things that really have no profit or value. In Hebrews 12, 14, we read that we are to strive for peace with everyone. An active attempt to make peace with everyone. In the home, I had a brother. I know what that's like. Make peace with our brother. Or worse, to make peace with our sister. Or to make peace with our children. Parents, sometimes we have to lay down the law and do things that we know they're not going to like, but we know it's got to be that way. We ought to do everything we can to make peace in the home. Or at work. Or online. Or at church. Strive for peace. Romans 12 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are we living peaceably with all? Or do we love, do we feed on that quarreling? We we make those jabs. I remember what it's like to poke your brother verbally or fingerly and to, 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 to irritate him as much as we can and then get that reaction out of him. It's not a Christian behavior. And unfortunately, I did it when I was a kid. Sometimes I find myself doing it now as an adult. And not to my brother, but to my neighbor, but to someone online, my wife, or to my kids. We ought to be peaceable. We ought to be gentle, it says. Tolerant. It means to yield or to be reasonable. It's, it's a word that's used in other parts of the Scripture about being reasonable. And, and in Philippians, Paul says that our reasonableness or our gentleness must be known to everyone. It's something that should mark the reputation and character of a Christian. Tell me, are you known for being reasonable, gentle, peace-loving? Finally, he says that they must show perfect courtesy to all people. Uh, other translations uh, have it that showing every consideration or meekness. I like how uh, my, my Bible dictionary explains it this way. It defines the word as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Not impressed by how self-important you think you are. Finally getting an accurate representation of who you are and saying, you know what, my opinion isn't that great. I don't have to insist upon my way every time because it's really not that perfect. Maybe you have a good idea too. Maybe your way is, is okay to do too instead of the my way or the highway approach. It's showing respect. And consideration really has an element of humility in there. And these are the things that mark Christian behavior. And Paul says these are the things that we need to be reminded to be. But also, he says to remind them of what they used to be 
or what they shouldn't be. If you look in verse number 3, because the behavior that we read in verses 1 and 2 are not normal, natural behaviors. These things don't happen on their own. These things happen only by the Spirit of God and the grace of God. And in verse number 3, we find out what is natural and normal. To be foolish. He says, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We passed our days. We, we lived our life in malice. Which means it's wickedness. It's that desire to cause other people harm. It's how we pass the time. By trying to hurt people. Or envy. Being dissatisfied with our own condition when comparing it to other people. It's how we lived our lives. So-and-so got a new truck. Man, mine, I wish I had that truck. I wish I could, and we, and we, we was keeping up with the Joneses, that idea of, I, I'm not satisfied or content with what I have. I've got to get more because someone else got that. I need that too. And notice how he, in the last part there, hated by others and hating one another. People hate me, and I hate them back. And that's how we lived our lives. And that's what's normal. That's what's natural. And sometimes we see people, because they're made in God's image, that they, they have these little glimmers of, of goodness in them, but this is the natural state. This is who we are because we are sinners. This describes anybody who is not filled with God's Spirit and is not controlled by Him. And Paul is saying, Titus, remind these Christians in Crete that they used to be like this. And they still live among people who are like this. But something happened. What happened? We see the third thing in verse number 4. But, and this marks a change, because Paul is saying you should be this, you shouldn't be this. Here's how you cannot be this, and here's how you can be this. Verse number 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Something changed. Something happened and made it necessary and possible to live the right way. What is it? Simply God saved us. When? When God's kindness and loving, uh, goodness and loving kindness appeared. We've seen that word before, that epiphany. Back in chapter 2 last Sunday, we saw that. Verse 11, that the grace appeared to us. And now we see that goodness and loving kindness has appeared to us. In the form of God sending His only begotten Son. John 3.16 God so loved the world. That's that, that's that philanthropy. This loving kindness is revealed to us in God's giving us His Son. And notice that all of this is not because of things that we've done, verse number 3. Not the things that we did, because if we want to see what we were doing, look back in verse 3. That's what we were doing. We were disobeying. We were speaking evil of people. We were, we were uh, being um, uh, led around and enslaved by our own passions and pleasures. We weren't, be, we weren't doing righteousness. And Paul is just reminding them that you're not saved because of the things that you do or the things that you did but because of His own mercy. I like how uh, Romans 9 and verse 11 says that in, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. He saved us because of His own doing, not because of ours. 
And he goes on in verse 16 to say, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He saved us because of His own mercy. How does He save us? By the washing or the cleansing of regeneration. This word regeneration simply means a new birth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And notice this Trinitarian work of the Gospel. We see all three members of the Trinity in these, in these, in these verses here. We see that the Father who has elected uh, uh, us and, and pours His Spirit out on those whom He has chosen. And He has saved us by the washing of the Spirit whom He pours out to us through the Son, Jesus. The Spirit then regenerates or reborns people and renews them on whom He has richly poured out. This washing here is a spiritual cleansing. Listen to what Peter says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Jesus Himself said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he goes on later to say, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. That is completely done by the work of God's Spirit in us. Now some people believe that this has something to do with a water baptism that has plays a role in our salvation and and if that doesn't seem obvious to you, then I don't want to bog you down and confuse you. But in case you've heard that, just understand that in the whole context of what Paul is saying, he is clearly emphasizing that it has nothing to do with what you do. Your salvation is not dependent on anything you do or try to do, but only on God and on His mercy and on His goodness and loving kindness to save people. And notice that we are not saved only from God's wrath and condemnation, but also from the enslavement of verse number 3. The enslavement to lust. The disobedient lifestyle. The foolishness, the malice, the envy. We're saved from these things too. Because these kinds of behaviors listed in verse number 3 are for those who are unregenerate, unrenewed, unsaved, which is why those who are saved, regenerate, reborn, renewed, shouldn't live this way. Ephesians 5.26, Christ loved the church, gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the good works. This is the purification, the sanctification that God intends to do in each of His people. I'll just finish by looking at verse number 8 and, and, and understanding how it, it fits into this because Paul is saying now, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on this. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Titus and the elders are to remind the people of these things. And in fact, they are supposed to insist on these things, drill them in so that the people of God understand as well as devote themselves to good works. The church today, as it always has and always will, needs a regular, consistent, continual reminder that they were sinners, they still are, 
But now they're heirs of eternal life, as we see there at the end. So that uh, uh, verse number, I, I didn't read it as, as, uh, as I planned to. If you'll go back to verse number uh, eight, uh, six, I'm sorry, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, verse seven, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The church needs to be reminded of that, for, of, of what we were, what we are now, heirs of eternal life. We need to be reminded of how this happened. God saved us. And therefore, how we should live in light of these truths, which results in good works. Now, in verse, if you're following this idea of good works in this theme, we see in, in, in chapter 2, Christ has redeemed us and purposed that we be a people who are zealous to do good works. Then in chapter 3 and verse 1, we see that we need to be ready to do these good works. And then by the end of chapter 3, in verses 8 and 14, we need to be devoted to doing these good works. And all of these good works that we're supposed to be devoted to doing are rooted in the understanding that we have been saved. Rooted in the understanding that we have been born again and renewed and washed clean by God's Spirit. And we must be diligent to remember both parts. The good works and then the basis for which we do them. And just by way of closing, I want to ask some questions and, 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 and by, way, by way of an application, encourage you to think through these, through these thoughts. Because number, when we emphasize the salvation part without the good works that follow, what happens? Well, we boil salvation down to a one-time experience, a decision that you made at a meeting, a prayer that you prayed, something that happened in the past and has absolutely no effect or bearing on any other part of your life. We can pay no attention to sanctification and therefore do whatever we think is right in our own eyes. Carl Spurgeon, great 19th century preacher, said, Works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation, and the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves His people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace, and for no other reason. That's what happens, though, when we forget about the good works. What also happens when we go the other way and we emphasize the good works, but not based on God's work? Well, we can begin to think that God saved us because of our good works and our righteousness which we've done. We have a works-based salvation. Or we can think that we needed His grace to be saved and it was nothing more than a head start, a push, a leg up, and I've got it from here now. We could condemn others who are still like what we forgot we used to be because they're not doing the good works that I do and we condemn them for it. I think Paul was reminding the Christians here that as they looked on the world, especially on their nation of Crete, that they need to look on them with compassion, not contempt. Because they used to be just like those other people. Something happened to them. And it wasn't something that they did. But purely by mercy and grace, it was done to them. And now they don't have to be that way anymore. And when they can look on the other people who are still like that, they can empathize. They can show compassion. They can sympathize. They can show God's love. Same grace of God that appeared bringing salvation to us. We pray that it is brought to them. To some who are the unlikeliest of people. We can think when we 
emphasize the good works, but not on the basis of God's work. We can think that others must do the same things that we did in order to be saved. Or we can excuse our sin because, hey, look at all the good I did do. Forget about the one or two things that I didn't do. What about all the good that I did do? Or we can excuse our sin because I can always make up for it later with a few more good works. Maybe the worst of all when we emphasize the good works but not on the basis of God's work. We can never really be certain that what we did do is enough. We're always trying to do a little bit more. Truth is, what you did do is not enough. It will never be enough. But what, what God did is. But when we understand what God did for us, and what He expects for us and from us, we honor God's Word and bear testimony in our works to the Gospel of grace. We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by showing what we believe in how we behave. And we teach future generations a true biblical Gospel. So, May we never forget who we once were. Let's show compassion. Do good to those around us, regardless of how good or bad they may be, regardless of how lovable or unlovely they may be. Remembering that without the grace of God, we would be no different. Let us be known for our compassion and our good works towards all people, whatever they may be, whatever they may believe, whatever they may do or look like. May we never forget what God has done for us. Let us give glory to the one who deserves it for anything good that comes from our lives. May our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven.